Welcome to the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin. Happy 2019 to everyone listening to the show. 2018 was a great year. The show started at the end of August. First episode was August 31st. And since then, the show experienced what I feel was phenomenal growth. Over that time, I produced eight episodes and got to interview some great historians and authors. Several downloads across not only the United States, but across the world. Developed over 100 followers on Twitter. Uh, A lot of them I interact with on a daily basis now, and I, I love that. And it's been a huge pleasure to see how well this show has been received. So thank you to everyone listening for what was a terrific debut year uh, in 2018. I hope you had a great Christmas and New Year's. I certainly did. It was nice to take a little bit of time off. But I'm very excited about the new year. I'm happy to be back. And I'm happy about the lineup I have put together for the first few months of this new year. We're going to cover some interesting stuff. I'm also excited to tell you about a new development with the show, something I've been working on over the holiday season, and that is the Can't Make This Up History podcast is now on Patreon. If you're not familiar with Patreon, Patreon is a website that allows people to engage with and support projects that they really enjoy, that they, that they feel a connection with. Sometimes that's artists and their artwork, sometimes it's new authors and their books, uh, or in my case, it's podcasting. If you are a veteran podcast listener, you might already be familiar with Patreon. It's a platform that a lot of podcasters use, and it'll be a way to cover some of the costs associated with producing this show, as well as to develop it in the future. I won't go into a lot of detail of how it's structured. There are several tiers of support and a lot of benefits that I'm very excited about, including bonus episodes and ways to interact with the authors that I interview. If it's something you're interested in, head over to the Patreon page at patreon.com slash cmtu history. That's cmtu as in can't make this up history. Now let's move on to today's show. My guest today is Professor Fiona Sampson. Fiona is a leading British poet and writer who has authored 27 books, been published in 37 languages, and she has received numerous international awards in the United States, India, Macedonia, and Bosnia. In the UK, she has been named a member of the most excellent order of the British Empire by the Queen for her services to literature. She joins me on the podcast to talk about her critically acclaimed biography In Search of Mary Shelley, The Girl Who Wrote Frankenstein, which has received several significant accolades, including BBC Radio 4's Book of the Week, as well as Literary Nonfiction Book of the Year in The Times. In our discussion, we cover Mary Shelley's childhood in a unique intellectual household, her romance with the aristocratic poet Percy Bysshe Shelley, the origins of Mary's monumental novel Frankenstein, and how she pushed the envelope of social convention to craft a literary career during her life and reshape the face of literature with her legacy. I do have one disclaimer before we get started. You will notice some issues with the audio quality at certain points in our interview. While Fiona and I didn't hear it during recording, I think there was an issue with our connection that I discovered during post-production. I've spent several nights taking out what interference I could, and the recording is much improved, but not where I would like it to be, and so for that, I do apologize. Now, on to my interview with Professor Fiona Sampson. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast, bringing you strange but true things from the past. It's not the average history that you learned in school, we're bringing you the heroes and bringing 
Hi, Fiona. How are you today? I'm great, thank you. How are you? Very good. Thank you for coming on. Oh, pleasure. Great to be here. I've no idea what time of day it is there, but... Uh, it's about lunchtime here. Ah, uh, well, tea time here. Ah, tea time. I wish we had tea time. Yeah, it's a good thing, especially cream teas. Well, can you start off by telling us a little bit about you, uh, your work, and how you got interested in Mary Shelley? Well, um... I was going to say my day job is, but I suppose that's true, my day job is as a poet. That's what I've been doing for most of my writing life. And a few years ago, I prepared an edition of Percy Bysshe Shelley's poetry. Um, Faber have a poet-to-poet -poet series where a poet who's living and working now um, finds a way to read a canonical famous poet of the past in a way that is pleasurable. So it's not sort of educational, it's not scholarly, either of those things. It's if you love reading poetry, what would you enjoy reading of Percy Shelley's? And of course I had to write an introduction to that. So I think that that's why the commission came to me to write a biography of Mary Shelley. And I was delighted to go for it because I've wanted to write um, a literary biography for a long time. And I probably wouldn't have had the nerve to suggest such a, a well-known figure for my very first biography. So it's worked very well for me. Good, good. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very well-done biography, very easy to read and very entertaining. You're just engrossed in her life. Um, can you tell us a little bit about why Mary Shelley deserves a biography? What did she contribute to literature? Because um, a lot of people think of her and they just think she's the girl who wrote Frankenstein, the book about the big monster. Yes, well, thank you. Thank you for liking the book. Um, I think two things, really. One was that I felt quite strongly that she hadn't really, although there'd been lots of research about her, there hadn't been anything which really particularly made her come alive. I mean, I'm not sure the perception tells you much about what it's like for someone going through experiences, uh, you know, as, as they happen. I don't think that's very, I don't think it tells us in a way very much. I mean, of course, it's great people do that kind of scholarly work. And obviously, I was being scholarly too. But the scholarly stuff seems to me only the first step. You then have to close read the evidence which you've discovered and find out what that means for the person you're writing about. So I felt there was space for, yeah, for something more three-dimensional, something more about Mary Shelley. And frankly, what an astonishing achievement it was for her to write Frankenstein and then go on to write all the other novels and biography and travel writing that she did um, at a time when, you know, 200 years ago, it wasn't easy to be a woman writer. It wasn't easy to be a woman full stop. And um, Mary was very much swimming against the tide, both in terms of society and sort of publishing culture, but also in terms of her own family, her own relationship, in the space and time to write and having the courage again to go to publishers and get what she wrote published, I mean, and, and get it commissioned and so on. So I think that she's a very, I think she's a very interesting and inspiring role model because she had a terribly difficult life and yet incredibly significant book, not just the first science fiction, first dystopian fiction as well. She wrote the first um, dystopian novel, which is The Last Man, about a pandemic that wiped what except The Last Man. Um, and she, at the same time, 
there hadn't been really a deep understanding of her because there hadn't been a really in-depth realization of her as a character. So I think that's what I was trying to do. Yes, and she, um, with with her her novels, and in particularly, I mean, you said she wrote travel essays and she wrote biographies, but with her novels, in particularly, I've heard it said that she basically started the science fiction genre. Yes, Frankenstein is the first science fiction novel. And that's partly because of when she was writing. She was a romantic, and romanticism was at the very start of what we call modernity or modernism. The very start of playing uh, on a kind of God-centered view of the universe and saying, well, we don't understand. And it's the start of um, the humanness, the measure of our understanding, the measure of the universe, the, the, um, the most thinking mind in the universe, if you want to put it like that. And so it's the start of, in the time that Mary's writing Frankenstein, there wasn't even the notion of a professional scientist. I mean, there were people who were full-time scientists, but there wasn't the word scientist even. So, um, you know, it's only just beginning to think that science is really important and really has to do with them and with all of us directly. And so it's perhaps not surprising that it's at this time that we get the novel, the first novel in which the morality and politics and the drama is all around science. It all comes from scientific innovation. So, you know, it is indeed the first science fiction novel. Yeah, I first read the novel about uh, 10 years ago and, you know, expecting a, like the films, you know, big lumbering mm -hmm. monster, but uh, mm -hmm. way more complex dealing with, like you said, uh, morality, issues of identity. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Much more human, much more like a novel, really, in a way, you know, a typical novel, which is about people and motivations and, yeah. Yeah, and very human story. Yeah, and beautifully written, because I think one of the things that's very um, disappointing still is the notion that somehow Mary didn't really write it, or she didn't have the idea, or she just had the idea, but she couldn't actually fully form the novel, or that the novel was has been sorted out by the films from, you know, 1931 and James Whale onwards. And, of course, none of those things is true. I mean, Mary did write it. She did write basically every single word of it. There were a few revisions um, by Percy, but that's no more than, in fact, it's much less than a, a, publisher's, um, a publisher's desk editor would do normally today in professional publishing. Um, they're little stylistic adjustments, you know. Um, not always for the better, frankly. He tended to change things into more stuffy dated ways of writing because he felt this was correct so you know I, I think it's sort of I think it's disappointing we still don't quite give her credit or perhaps we're beginning to um certainly something that's changed in my life Tim, is that she's now well, Frankenstein is now on the syllabus in schools it's always either on the syllabus for the exams that we do at 16 or the one exams we do at 18 and um that definitely wasn't the case when I was at school when I was at school it was we were actually talked it was a sort of a fragment of a novel, not a whole novel, which of course is not true. It's a perfectly formed novel with a set of, you know, um, Russian dolls, you know, the creature's first person narrative inside Frankenstein, the scientist's first person narrative inside the Arctic explorer, Captain Walton's first person narrative, which he then tells to his sister in letters home. You know, of course, his sister has Mary Shelley's initials, she's called Margaret Savile. So, in fact, it's a very precise and neat clockwork, almost, you know, structure. It's far, far from being a fragment. So, yeah. 
I mean, I suppose that's another reason for writing, for reading or writing a biography about Mary Shelley, is to remind people that she she really did do it, you know, and taught herself to write fiction as she was doing it. And while, you know, people in her family were killing themselves, she was getting married, she had a child, she was pregnant, she had another child, moving house, you know, plenty going on all around her. But yeah, that that's what really shines out uh, in your biography is the life that she led was um, you know, very counterintuitive for what you would expect for that period. So um, let's go back to you know, very early on in Mary's life. Mary Shelley wasn't always Mary Shelley. She was Mary Godwin. And uh, that name Godwin comes from some prestigious parentage. Um, what can you tell us about her mother and father? Yes, I mean, I think one of the reasons and perhaps that Mary was in a sense rocket fueled, was a prodigy, is that she was the daughter of two of the most influential and well-known political thinkers of her age. Um, her mother was Mary Wollstonecraft, who wrote a vindication of the rights of women, but also wrote a vindication of the rights of men in response to Edmund Burke attacking the French Revolution. So in other words, she was pro-French Revolution, she was revolutionary, and Mary's father was also revolutionary. Wollstonecraft died 10 days after Mary was, our Mary was born um, from complications. But uh, our Mary's father didn't die. He was William Godwin. Although he'd written his most influential book four years before Mary was born in 1793, Political Justice. And actually a novel, a political novel too, called Caleb Williams came out in the same year. And Mary, you know, Mary would write later on in her, in her journal to be something great and good was the precept my father gave me. And she definitely felt herself to be the intellectual heir of these two great minds and that it really mattered that she kind of didn't fall short. And actually what's rather sad is she thought she had fallen short because although Frank, we know that Frankenstein is a great novel of ideas, she didn't think that was quite enough. She's the more serious form and she should have written philosophy, but she concluded she had no gift for it. Of course, she had a gift for it because you can't write a novel of ideas without doing philosophy, but she didn't quite realise that. So I think that that, it also meant that, you know, her father's home was, her father was also became a publisher and a reviewer, and he was friends with many of the leading intellectuals of his day. So, I mean, among romantic poets, he was friends with Samuel Taylor Coleridge, he was friends with Humphrey, Humphrey Davy, who went on to discover many elements of the periodic table, ironically through electrolysis. He, um, was friends with Quaker reformers, and all these people would come and, because it was a radical liberal household, they wouldn't just be cloistered in the study with Mary's father. They would, the children would be allowed to eat with them, so they would, so they would be sitting. So the young supper table, with great thinkers holding forth, and so, you know, she was, she didn't have any doubt about the possibility. She didn't. It seemed to her impossible to be at the cutting edge of intellectual history. Uh, e even when she was quite young. I mean, in a sense, she sort of expanded to fill the place available for her, you know. So she got to sit at the table and talk with these, these big names that we study today in British poetry and literature and politics. And the history of science, exactly. And even if she wasn't, you know, even if she was a well-behaved child who didn't say very much, the point is she would have been hearing them, which, I mean, most people of her era wouldn't even have been able to read their ideas. I mean, they were, it was so cutting edge. You know, most people would have been, you know, five or ten years behind. 
And, of course, most girls wouldn't even have had, well, they would have had literacy. I mean, girls from a background, comfortable background like hers would have had literacy, but not necessarily much more. They wouldn't necessarily have had an education. And I think Mary was largely self-taught, although there were tutors too. Um, But because it was such an exceptional household, she was able to stitch together, you know, an education without which, of course, you can't be a writer. So it's kind of tremendous happenstance that she was born where she was. She'd been born elsewhere, even at that time. She probably wouldn't have written anything. You know, she would have just been incredibly frustrated and bored. So what can you tell us about um, young Mary Godwin? What's her personality like? What does she look like? Well, she's strawberry blonde. and she's very fair, very pale-skinned. Um, that may have been because she didn't always have great health. She had uh, a difficult skin disease, which came on with in her teenage years. She was sent away from home for a total of nearly three years um, in her teens um, to seaside resorts, which was kind of a standard thing for your health in those days. First to finishing school down in the southeast, not that far from London, and then Scotland, which would have been far required a sea journey and was a you know, it was a major what well, was another country, it was a major expedition. Um, her parents aren't with her, right? No, that's right. She's sent away alone. I mean her stepmother takes her down to Ramsgate the first time, but no, she's 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 by herself in these places. So she's she's sent away from the family for a total of nearly three years. And partly this is for this skin disease, which is the excuse. And which may have been understood by the family, misunderstood by the family, to be life-threatening because there wasn't a great deal of knowledge about things like eczema and psoriasis in those days. And they, it's quite likely they may have thought it was, for example, TB, which um, can take you know, the form of skin disease and is indeed obviously life-threatening and threatening the life of the rest of the family, crucially, and even or leprosy because um, you know, there's, in Imperial London, you know, there's it's not quite imperial yet, but London is an international city and leprosy is not fully gone. Um, again, that would have been life-threatening. So she's sent away, um, but she's also sent away because she obviously is quite rebellious. She never gets on with her stepmother. And um, when she's sent away the first time, her father sends a message. She's too much of a moral coward to tell her direct but he sends her a message to be delivered to her. And he says, tell Mary that despite um, present, ev- present evidence, um, I still have faith that she will turn out to be a good and what is more a wise woman. It's a tough thing to say to your 13, 14-year-old daughter you're sending her away from home. Um, and, you know, what 13, 14-year-old is particularly, you know, wise. So, you know, a fairly sort of tough and... Yeah, unrelenting. And of course, Mary adored her father and had been the apple of his eye in four. I think all of that was quite difficult for her. And unfortunately, of course, she blamed her stepmother. But in fact, if you look at the evidence, I don't think her stepmother was particularly wicked. I think she wanted a well-ordered household. And obviously, she would have liked Mary to not Chico and to respect her. But I don't think um, I don't think she was unfair to Mary. I think just Mary's sort of heart was broken because she was displaced, really, um, you know, at the age of four and never quite got over that, really, in terms of her father. And it, it's tempting to want to read into this period, you know, the idea of being displaced and she's on the outside and she has this, this physical and somewhat of a deformity. 
do you think that plays a part in how she portrays Frankenstein's yes, monster? Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's this way around. I don't think that Frankenstein is, um, you know, a way for her to explore her experience. I don't think it's directly autobiographical like that. I think it's more that her experiences, well, all our experiences go into what we think and write, don't they? And I think her experiences were so, were very useful. And maybe one of the reasons that her creature, her Frankenstein's creature, is in some ways a sympathetic character, a tragic character, certainly, and human. And we empathize with him for much of the time. I mean, we don't know who to empathize with, do we? We move to and fro. But unlike James Wales, Boris Karloff, is that, yeah, she had more empathy than James Wales. She had the capacity to imagine a creature, someone who is not pretty, and someone who is made an outsider, in a sense through no fault of his own, which, you know, Hollywood and James Whale didn't. Hollywood is a kind of simplifying force. You know, Hollywood has only brought forward the myth, hasn't it? It's brought forward the myth about the overreaching scientist who doesn't think about the consequences of his actions and research, and you should think carefully about the ethical and social context of what you're doing. Really important, an archetype, a myth. It hasn't brought forward the other half of the myth, and the other archetype, which is the tragedy of the nearly human or the human who is somehow an outsider and who is made bad by bad things happening to them. And, you know, who nevertheless, you know, is not a monster, is not a creature, is in effect a person. Because Mary Shelley throughout and the creature himself and all the characters in the novel all treat the creature as having moral agency in the way that you wouldn't if he was like, you know, a tiger escaped from a zoo. You know, he's he's not a monster. He's a human. He's a moral agent. And that's why he has the right to love and to belonging and to literacy and to probably a vote. And, you know, um, that's why he can recognize himself in. Well, that's why he's such a quick learner, but it's also why he can recognize himself in the, the political exiles who are the cottage dwellers whom he learns by imitating. You know, he's very much a human. And that's too empathetic and sophisticated a view of people who are other than us for Hollywood, frankly, you know, I mean, Hollywood, you know, I mean, blockbuster films and mainstream culture have a tendency to give someone a, a foreign accent and that means they're a baddie. Well, I mean, yeah, what that guys and bad guys. Yes, exactly. And the bad guy is, you know, the bad guy usually has a Slav accent and the good guy has an American accent. And that's how you can tell who's who. And that's pretty unsophisticated morally, isn't it? And in terms of um, empathy and understanding that there's a huge variety of, you know, personhood on this planet. So I think, yeah, I think that Mary had a really difficult life from quite early on. And that actually created a kind of imaginative capacity in her that was one of the things that made her a great writer. Okay, well, her life becomes uh, no less complicated when she uh, does end up uh, becoming married. Um, so what can you tell us about uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley and the, the circumstances of their elopement together? Yes. Percy Bysshe Shelley was one of her father's disciples. So he, although he was the heir to a baronetcy, in other words, he's an aristocrat and moneyed, he rather bizarrely advocated social revolution, was a big fan of the French Revolution. The contradiction inherited him. Um, he was in 1814 when Mary met him and 
within a few weeks eloped with him, married now with one child and another on the way. And he had already eloped with one 16-year-old, I mean, his first wife. And he had eloped with his first wife, and he had tried to persuade her sister to come along too, because he was a believer in free love, conveniently for him. And he was more successful with Mary in that he did manage to persuade her stepsister, Claire, to come along too. So Mary, in fact, didn't really elope because they couldn't get married because he was married. She ran away, and she ran away with Percy and with her stepsister to Europe. They were going to go to Switzerland and form an ideal community there. Um, but in fact, Percy was not very good at money either. He had to constantly, because his father was still alive, he had to constantly, so he didn't have his inheritance, he had to constantly raise money by taking out bonds against his inheritance, against the year when he would inherit, you know, an imaginary year when he would inherit. And he wasn't obviously very organized at doing this, or it was difficult to do. And so when they ran away, they discovered actually they didn't have much money. And by the time they got to um, Switzerland, having walked across France in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars, I mean, not a sensible thing to do in... Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, and, and that shows their kids at this point, essentially. It does. It shows that they're kids. And certainly, you know, Mary and Claire, um, you know, they're 16, you know, the girls are 16. And, yeah, it's a kind of headstrong thing. So they get to um, they get to Switzerland, and it's horrible, and they've got no money. So they literally pause only to sort of pick their laundry up, and they set off for home the next day for Britain. And um, Luckily for us, to do so, they have to travel back by riverboat because they can't. It's the cheapest way to travel, and they can't afford any other way of traveling. And um, so they come up the Rhine, and as they come up the Rhine, they pass within sight of a ridge of hills called the Oderwald, which is there are lots of castles associated with the Frankish knight ridge. Um, you wouldn't be able to see the castle because you see the ridge, and one of them is um, Frankenstein Castle. And Frankenstein Castle, well, they wouldn't be able to see it, so surely it's coincidence. But of course, it's not coincidence because there were, there are very interesting stories about Frankenstein Castle. One is hoard of buried treasure, and there'd been a dragon there. But another is that, and it's not um, a fairy tale; it's, it's really true that there was a 17th-century alchemist who was born in the castle and was retained there as an alchemist because he claimed to have discovered the secret of life. So you know. No, no coincidence that that's who Mary chooses as the name of her scientist. And how would Mary have known this? Well, as they pass within sight of the Oderbell, they're sleeping out on deck just that night, because it's summer, and, um, and with a group of German students. So that's where Mary also gets the suppression of her, her, of her Frankenstein form. And interestingly, the, the students, she, there are three of them, and she describes them. She describes one, one she doesn't describe much. One she describes as extremely well-spoken, good-looking, intelligent, very much like Frankenstein, in fact. And one she describes as really brutish and oafish, and she can't understand why the one she likes is friends with him. Very much kind of shades of, as it were, a Jekyll and Hyde version of, you know, Frankenstein and the creature. And so, you know, had it not been for that, probably... You know, Frankenstein would have been called something that might not have been a German medical student, it might have been some other kind of student, or indeed not a student at all. Um, you know, these are these are the ways that the imagination works, aren't they? Yeah, one little piece will stick with you and uh, yes, become exactly. quite significant down the road. 
Yes, exactly. And so, of course, the story of Frankenstein, the trigger for the Frankenstein novel is two years later, in the summer of 1818, um, they go back to Switzerland. This time, Claire is, has stopped flirting with Percy temporarily, and she is trying to prolong an affair she started with Lord Byron, who has just been exiled because of sexual scandal, and um, who she knows is going to Geneva. So they follow him to Geneva. Actually, they get there first. Um, and uh, they do indeed spend a lot of time socialising with Byron, and because it's very bad weather, it's a year without a summer because of a volcanic eruption of Mount Tambora in the Dutch, what's then the Dutch East Indies, the year before, and everywhere on the on Earth is one or two degrees cooler, but particularly in Northern Europe, where in Western Europe, where um, you know, there's lakes are still frozen in August. The you know there's frost in the fields in August, and people are literally starving. People are desperate. It's, it's just bizarre, isn't it? It is. It's bizarre and so extreme. And in the midst of this, here they are on this holiday. So what they do is they spend a lot of time. Well, we don't know it's a lot of time, but they spend some time telling ghost stories, and they read from a particular collection of German stories, which are kind of more hardcore, more more schlocky than the English Gothic tradition, which is much more sort of just medievalism. Um, sh- sh- the German stories are called shower roman or shudder stories, and they tend to have skeletons and necromancy and raising the dead, and it's just much more gory, although not very gory by today's standards, but still quite gory. And um, so their readings, you know, let's have a competition. Let's all write a ghost story. Um, and the all is Mary and Percy and Byron, and not Claire, but the gentleman's travelling companion, John William Polidori, who wants to be a writer. In fact, he's Keith Byron, doesn't know this, for John Murray Publishers. They've commissioned him for a kind of, you know, as it were, a kiss and teller, and it's not kiss, obviously, but, you know, a kind of insider's secret reveal all memoir of his time with Byron, of course. Byron is notorious. So both the poets, Percy and Byron, start, account but don't finish because you know they're not really that interested but both Polidori and Mary take it incredibly seriously and Polidori Percy's story is absolutely ridiculous isn't it yes exactly and and Byron's too I mean Percy's is autobiographical but Byron's is you know, it's a great setting it's a great setup but he just does a setup he doesn't try he doesn't realize he needs a plot he doesn't know how to go on and then unravel what he's set up which is an Englishman who's in a Turkish graveyard near Ephesus he just doesn't know how to, um, you know, establish why he's there, what he's doing and what he's discovered and how it's going to hang together. There's no story arc. He gives up once it gets difficult, really. He's good at the atmospherics and that's all. And Percy is quite dis- disturbed this summer. Of course, we should remember that not only are they drinking, but they're probably taking laudanum too. And Percy is having hallucinations. And Percy does have a tendency to do that, though, when he feels he's not getting enough attention to sort of finally act out. But um, anyway... So Bolidori writes a short story which becomes The Vampire, which becomes the first in the genre of vampire fiction. And Mary takes the longest, but she takes a year, although of course that's actually a very short time, to write her novel. And she writes Frankenstein. And she completes it. She might write most of it in the past. Suddenly she changes her reading habits and she starts reading novels to work out how to structure a novel. And very, it's an incredible feat discipline, I think, to, to actually go ahead and finish it. Oh, absolutely. You know, especially because, um, as you talk about in the book, you know, Percy and, and Mary's relationship is very complicated. It seems like they're always on the move, and you know, it's not just them 
yeah, in their exactly. relationship because Percy wants this, like you mentioned, kind of a free love. You, you liken mm -hmm. it to a harem at some point. We'll return to our discussion on Mary Shelley after a short break. A new thing I want to start doing in the new year is to share with you the podcasts that I enjoy listening to, and perhaps you might enjoy giving them a listen too. If you enjoy learning about the darker side of history, I'd like to introduce you to the Assassinations podcast. In this weekly podcast, host Neil Cooper unpacks the stories behind some of history's most famous assassinations, as well as some shrouded in layers of cover-up and mystery. The Assassinations podcast is well into its second season, and this year it's covering a theme that I find endlessly fascinating, assassinations related to spies and espionage. Be sure to check out the Assassinations podcast on all major podcast directories. I'd also like to point you in the direction of another podcast that is specifically relevant to our discussion today. You might remember Professor Sampson talking about The Year Without a Summer, which was the gloomy backdrop of the eve of Mary Shelley's writing Frankenstein. All the freak weather Europe was experiencing was the result of a global climatic event stemming from the eruption of Mount Tambor in Indonesia over 7,000 miles away. The Age of Victoria podcast covers this in great detail in a three-part series. The Age of Victoria podcast covers a range of topics related to Victorian England, and if you're interested in learning more about the Mount Tambor eruption in 1815, you'll want to listen to episodes 13, 14, and 15. All right, now back to the show. Because Percy wants this, like you mentioned, kind of a free love. You, you liken mm. it to a harem at some point? Yes, I think that Percy needed a lot of attention and admiration. And I think that whenever the going was tough for Mary, for example, if she was exhausted after pregnancy, but even just not then, I mean, even if they disagreed on something, he just found that elsewhere. And unfortunately, right from day one of their elopement, he found it, you know, there was someone else in the home. Claire was there. And I am pretty sure that... I mean, they clearly had a romantic thing. I'm pretty sure they had a sexual thing. I think that, yeah, I think that that meant he wasn't very generous and it wasn't a relationship of equals. And Mary could never really negotiate for anything because if the tone again got tough, he just, you know, he didn't rather do the hard work of the relationship. He just sort of went off shopping with Claire. I mean, literally. And because he was bad with money, they were always moving. They were always moving even before they moved to Europe. And then once they moved to Europe, they were always moving, partly because Percy was sometimes he was showing off to Byron, sometimes they were trying to escape, keep ahead of typhoid, sometimes they were trying to find a place where they could be respectable. Because, of course, even though once Percy's first wife had rather conveniently killed herself, this is during, during the year where Mary's writing Frankenstein, so at the end of 1816, Mary in order he hopes to become respectful and therefore get custody of his children by his first wife, which actually he doesn't succeed in doing because they are so scandalous as figures, known atheists, known to indulge in free love. Um, that, that also applies to their life, not only in London, but then in Europe. You know, they are highly visible because they're sort of the beau monde, and yet they are disreputable, and so they, they have to keep moving. And it's quite, in a way, a... Although they, in a way they are very sociable, it's quite an isolated life in many ways. I mean, Mary does make some friends. She makes friends with Byron, actually, who um, for once behaves very well. He, he really respects her, her achievements and her writing and so on and doesn't try and hit on her and doesn't try and exploit her um, and uses her as his fair copyist, which is first, first reader. I mean, it's, it's a very important literary role. 
So there's a real respect there. And she also Alexander Mavrodatos, who goes on to become the first leader of the, of the independent Greece. So she has some significant, it's quite an isolated and also quite a on-the-move life. And of course, Percy isn't doing any of that. Percy's not finding those new places to live each time. He's not setting up house. He's being the great man and or out enjoying, enjoying himself. It's Mary who's doing all of that um, on top of looking after children, being pregnant most of the time she's with me, with Percy, and writing. I mean, it's, you know, it's, not, a, it's not an equitable relationship in any way. I, 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 I find it hard to have a lot of respect for Percy, even though I think some of his poetry is very interesting and some of his political ideas are very interesting because I think that probably politics like charity begins at home, you know. Yeah, he um, definitely wasn't at, at all an ideal or all that supportive of, of a husband and father. It doesn't look like very kind of self-absorbed. Yes, very self. I can say and always make an excuse that, you know, for his work, he needs, you know, to be understood. Well, despite all this, Mary does manage to publish the Frankenstein novel in 1818. Um, She does so anonymously. Mm -hmm. Um, Yep. Why does she do that? And and how is this book received? Well, it's her second book. Was because she has difficulty publishing it finding a publisher um so while she's still working on redrafting and so on her first book which is a book of travel writing it's a history of the six weeks tour which is of course the history of the elopement but without the personal life bits um is published and and does quite well um gets you know respectful reviews and frankenstein is published on the first of january 1818 and the reviews are mixed because it's anonymous but it is dedicated to her father. So everyone knows it belongs to the school of William Godwin. So those who are admirers of Godwin and that way of thinking, having novels of ideas and that kind of writing, give it good reviews and admire its freshness. And those who are in Godwin and think that he's um, you know, an atheist and a subversive, um, give it bad reviews. So it has the mix of views you'd expect. It's published anonymously because Mary is a woman. It's as simple as that. Um, and all Mary's subsequent novels are published anonymously, but they are published under the tagline by the author of Frankenstein. And that's for a different reason, because, well, it's, it's partly a continuation of trying to not be known to be a woman, but, of course, her difficulty is that everybody in literary London, all of us, the reviewers, but also all the publishers, know it's her, know who she is, because they know her through her father, they know her through her late husband, and they know her through her dealings on behalf of the poems of her late husband, you know, prepared editions of his work and so on. So they treat her accordingly. That's it's very difficult for her to get subsequent contracts. And this is despite the fact that the book is a word-of-mouth success. By, so it's published in January, and by the summer, everyone's talking about it, and it's a great you know, mystery. Who wrote it? Who, who, you know, who, who was the author? And in the five years between publication, before Mary comes back, a widow, to London, there are, it's become a cultural cliche already, just as it is today. It's appeared in a skits based on it, you know, or melodramatic scenes based on it in lots of West End shows. It's been... Uh, mentioned in Parliament, in parliamentary debate. And by the time Mary comes back in 1823, there's not one but two full-length adaptations of Frankenstein on in the West End. So she comes back and she says to a friend, to Trelawney, in a letter, 
I find myself famous. But of course, she doesn't find herself famous because it's all pseudonymous or anonymous. It's just that the people it would be most convenient not to have know who she is, know who she is. And of course, you know, she's not getting any kind of royalties for these adaptations. That's right. And so in 1831, she prepares another edition in which she makes just enough changes to get around copyright law so that she can have an edition from which she gets some royalties. So she is, in 1822, when Percy dies, her family are immensely rich, but they want her to give up her one surviving child, Percy Florence, to them to bring up, and she refuses, absolutely. And so they say, well, we will loan you the money to bring him up, and no money for you to live on, because, of course, they want her to fail to do so. They want to have, which means that she has to entirely earn her own living. And she can only do writing. That's what she can do. She can't be a seamstress. She can't, you know, she can't be a governess or anything like that because she is not respectable because she's, everyone knows that she's run away with Percy Shelley, who was a married man and so on. So even though she then married him, you know, they had, they had children out of wedlock together. So she doesn't have many options. So she has to earn her living through writing. And she has to earn a decent enough living to, she feels, keep up the standards. So she has to send her son to rugby, which is one of the, you know, the major private schools in Britain, uh, because to do anything less would be to fail him as the heir to a baronetcy, which he then becomes, because he, rather the son, by Percy's first wife, dies. And so Mary's son becomes the heir, but her father-in-law lives to be 91. In fact, she doesn't long outlive him. And so... She only has a very few years right at the end of her life when her son is inherited, when she can live in financial security. And interestingly, at that point, she stops writing immediately and altogether. She really is a, a working single mother in this period she after is. Percy dies. She is, absolutely, yes. And, you know, the, all their sort of joint friends pretty much fail her because Percy has given her such a bad press behind her back to his friends, of course, because he's justifying infidelities. And I'm pretty sure that he was working up to leaving her because one of his last surviving letter is to Edward Williams, actually the friend he drowns with. And he says to Edward, well, you know, I need someone who loves and understands me. And whether from too much domestic proximity, Mary doesn't. In other words, he's trying to find an excuse to leave her. And I think that if he hadn't drowned, actually she would never have been able to keep the great myth of, you know, their great love alive. because. You know, she obviously knew that he was unfaithful. She knew he was unreliable. She knew he was unkind to her. Um, and she did struggle with him over it. But, of course, the moment he died, she then remembered well what she'd wanted all along, which is the person that she'd loved, that she'd fallen in love with. But I don't think she fell out of love with Percy. I think Percy fell out of love with her. You know, she was devastated when he died and very much committed herself to being his widow and being the keeper of the flame, although other people did offer marriage, but she didn't accept. Um, Prosper Merrimay, for example, and perhaps she should have done, perhaps she should have remarried. But yeah, you, you talk about a portrait that was done a number of years later where she's still wearing black out of mourning. And she didn't need to because, I mean, the, the, those kind of, that Victorian era heavy mourning didn't come in until, you know, the mid-19th century. And this is still quite an early portrait, you know, it's 18, well, it's not early in her life. In terms of the Victorian era, it was 1839. So, yeah, there she still is this whole morning. So, and, but, of course, widowhood was a way of turning around what everything knew about her as rackety into something respectable. 
you know, she's an establishment, kind of untouchable woman because she's a widow. And um, so you can sort of see why she did that. But I wasn't sure that her relationship cost her so much in every way that she had to believe it had been a great love. She couldn't afford emotionally to look at the possibility that, you know, he was about to move on from her as moved on Harriet. She couldn't, she couldn't think about that. It didn't bear thinking about. But she could make sense of the kind of mess, really, that he made of her life. Because he did make a mess of it. He didn't, I mean, he didn't choose to drown, but he didn't need to. I mean, he drowned largely because he was, you know, competing with Byron and having a faster boat. You know, it's like someone was a little boat today, you know, and, you know, he went out when the conditions weren't good, when it had been modified to make it go faster and be even less seaworthy and without testing it. I mean, you know, it's not a sensible thing to do. <laughs> Just how um, revolutionary was Mary by by carving out a strong literary career, supporting a son by herself as, as a widow? Because typically widowhood was almost akin to kind of a death sentence in that period. Yes, right? yes, exactly. I mean, not quite a death sentence, but yes, you know, you kind of vanish from society. Well, especially if you're unrespectable like Mary. I mean, if you were respectable, I think it'd be okay. But she was not respectable. She was both a widow and unrespectable. So she was very much a single mother in all those senses. And I think she was extraordinary, yeah. I think that, that although there are other women writers who are not much later than her, who, you know, I mean, the 19th century obviously was a great era of British women writers. I mean, the, the Brontes, there's Jane Austen, there's George Eliot, there's Mrs. Gaskell. But, um, you know, largely, apart from George, well, George Eliot also had a, obviously a problematic private or not respectful private life, but none of them really have to support themselves in the same way. You know, they may choose to do as much as they can, but they, and of course they're all hiding under male pseudonyms. Well, apart from Jane Austen, who is just a lady, um, you know, which is a very useful um, anonymity. But, you know, they are all kept, you know, the Brontes are kept by their father. Um, Jane Austen is kept by her family. You know, George Eliot has a lover and so on. So, it's just not, yeah, Mary, um, Mary was in a very unusual and very difficult situation. Yes. But the strange thing is, of course, you know, the question is then can you take her as a kind of pioneering feminist icon? Because, I mean, it wasn't voluntary. <laughs> she didn't say, oh, I don't want to live with, you know, men. I want to live outside society. I mean, in a way, she said that when she was 16. But I don't think she was really parroting the people around. I don't think she ever really said that. I think she owned the respectability and the comfort, which allowed you to write well, actually. I don't think, you know, starving a garret is good for anybody's writing. I think it gets in the way. We often have to do it, but I don't think it's helpful. I think it's a hindrance. All right, Fiona. Well, this has been um, a really fascinating uh, discussion. I've loved learning uh, about this great author. Where can people go if they want to learn more about you or your work or the book? Well, that's a great question. Thank you. Well, um, In Search of Mary Shelley, the girl who wrote Frankenstein, is published by Profile in the UK and Pegasus in the States. And it means all good bookshops. Um, and you can also just Google it and all the big reviews come up in the you know, Washington Post and New York Times and so on. And I have a website, which is www.jenasampson.co.uk. Um, yeah, so it would be great to hear from you there. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming on today, Fiona. A pleasure. Thanks so much for asking me, Kevin, and for a great talk. That wraps up another episode of the Can't Make This Up History podcast. Thank you again for making 2018 such a successful year, and thank you again for joining me in the new year.
I hope you enjoyed this episode on Mary Shelley's life and times. If you are interested in checking out Fiona Sampson's book, In Search of Mary Shelley, The Girl Who Wrote Frankenstein, you'll find a link down in the podcast description. If you're new to the podcast and want to listen to the backlog of episodes, or if you've been listening for a while and would like automatic downloads of new episodes as they arrive every other Tuesday, head over to iTunes and hit subscribe. Here there, would you consider rating the podcast and writing a short review? The more ratings and reviews a podcast has, the easier it is for new people to discover it. If you want to check out some extras related to today's topic of Mary Shelley, visit the podcast website at www.cantmakethisuppodcast.com. As always, you can connect with the show on social media on Facebook at facebook.com slash cmtuhistory, as well as on Twitter at cmtuhistory. On there every day, so give me a follow. I'd love to hear from you. Lastly, I'd like to send a thank you to Bree and Fry of Pontifax for mentioning this podcast in their Pope Fabian episode. And another thank you to Joe and Jess of the Cutting Class podcast for giving me a mention in their episode on George Wallace. All right, that's it from me. I'll see you back here in two weeks on January 22nd for another episode of the Can't Make This Up History podcast. Make it a great couple weeks, everybody.